Greetings in the precious name of Jesus. This is the last day of the year. 2023 is almost in the history books. You know, as I think of that, what have we done for Christ this year? What have I done for Christ this year? This morning I have a question to ask you, and that is, are you rich? Strange question for a message, isn't it? Maybe some of you sitting here this morning are saying, yes, I'm rich. I have a nice, thick bank account. Everything's taken care of. Perhaps even the investments are doing fairly well. I've got it pretty well set. You're rich in material things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Are you rich? That's the title of the message. Turn to Revelations chapter 2. I want you to consider and keep in mind that title. We're going to start reading at verse 8 and read to verse 11, and we're going to the second church in Revelation. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. There you may be tried, that you may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou, not a, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So Smyrna, just to give you a little background on where Smyrna was and on what this city was, Smyrna was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was also a port city and a coastal city or a city that was there on the sea, so it had a lot of traffic coming through it, same as Ephesus. The interesting note today, where Ephesus was, Ephesus as in the Bible, there is no longer any city there. There might be some villages there, if I have my history right. Ephesus is gone. The other interesting thing that I didn't bring out the other time when I was preaching, the last time I preached on the, on the church at Ephesus, is there is no longer a church at Ephesus. You think there's any significance to that? They had left their first love. There is no longer a church there. In fact, it was just a couple, maybe hundred years or so after the letter to Ephesus that they had a big 
Christian conference or something that took place there, and soon thereafter, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus was gone. Today, there is still a city at Smyrna. It's, moder- it's in modern-day Turkey. I believe it's Izmar, if I have it correct. I may not be pronouncing it right, but that is the name of the city. In my studies, and I don't know how old these, this um, encyclopedia, I guess I could say it was, is, but it says that modern-day, where Smyrna was, modern-day, there is still 250,000, a city of 250,000, the population. So a significant-sized city. Smyrna was one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor. It was known for its schools of science and medicine. Just keep that in mind as we go through this. And it also is, the climate there is nearly perfect I think was the wording was perfect or something like that. In the spring and the fall, the winters are cold and the summers are hot. But in the outlying areas, it's very fertile and you can grow a lot of different crops there in Smyrna. The name Smyrna means myrrh, one of the spices that the wise, one of the wise men brought to Jesus. Myrrh, this is very interesting. We just got done reading And we'll go back through Revelation here. But myrrh um, was used in the tabernacle, and it was also used to embalm. Myrrh, can you think of when the Smyrnians, as they were going through the things they were going through, that incense going up to the Father, a sweet-smelling savor as they continue to endure. The interesting thing is, is there is still a church in Smyrna today. Now, that's a broad statement, I realize, because you can, and by the world standards, Christianity, I say by the world standards, by secular all of that Christianity is broad. Those who are those who they would say are Christians. So Smyrna, and it still is a city of influence or affluence, I should say, today, because I believe there's actually a governor, and I'm not sure how Turkey runs their government, but there is a governor that actually lives in modern-day Smyrna. And there is, you can see in the port, ships from around the world will be there in the harbor or there in the port. So it still is a prominent city in that part of the world. That's the letter this morning, the church that we're going to look at this morning. And once again, I want you to remember that we are looking at it for us today, not for some time in history. I'm not saying that you can't take that with the seven churches, that it can be some time in the church's history. That's not what we're looking at it for today. 
In verse 8, we again have this phrase or this opening thought, and unto the angel, and this is once again not an angel as in what we would think of as an angel, a heavenly being. This was probably a prominent leader, and interestingly, it may have been Polycarp. And if you don't know who Polycarp was, Polycarp was a disciple of John, the Apostle John who wrote Revelation. He was also the bishop at Smyrna, so it may very likely be that this letter came to Polycarp, although it may not have been him. But it came to one of the prominent leaders of Smyrna, Someone who had authority. Someone who could speak into the church and who could relate to the church at Smyrna. And then we, we have the phrase or the wording there that says, the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Jesus is once again making reference to who He is. And then in verse 9... The first phrase there is the same as it was for the church at Ephesus, I know thy works. This morning, friends, Jesus knows our works. And this morning, that is not a bad thing to have works. But I want to say this, don't just rely on your works. If we go back to James, we have the idea that we must have faith and we must have works. By our faith, that's where our works come from. If you can picture with me, and this is just a little side note on this, if you can picture with me, you're in a rowboat. And if you've ever been in a rowboat, you have two oars. That's the only way you're going to get anywhere. I guess you can. If you lose an oar, you can somehow try to get, I believe, and I'm not a seaman or by any means someone who can, you know, knows all of this, but... I think you may be able to take that oar and do something with it in the back just to try to get you to go, but you're not going to go as fast as you will with two oars. You put those oars, have a little pin on them, they go into two little holders in the boat, and you're pulling yourself as you row, you're going. Where I'm going with that is this morning, picture yourself sitting in the boat. And you have two oars. The one is faith and the other is works. That's the only way you're going to get anywhere in life. Because this morning, if you're just going to be one of those that says, well, all I need is faith, that's all I need. And by the way, there's those that are teaching that today. And that's not going to get you very far. You do need faith. But if all you have is faith and that's your one oar, where are you going to go? Not very far in life. In fact... You gotta be going in circles. But on the other hand, if you only have the oar of works, where are you gonna go? You must have both to get anywhere in life. I believe the church of Smyrna had both, but Jesus is saying, I know thy works. Jesus is saying, I know what you're what you're doing. I know what you are about. <clears throat> Let's go to the next word here we have, tribulation. I believe if I were to ask, ask the question this morning, 
How many of you like tribulation? I don't know if I would have one hand that would go up. Friends, this morning, it's okay to go through tribulation. Okay? We don't like it. Dan was saying this morning, you know, we like things to be comfortable. Tribulation comes from the word tribulum, which means a threshing instrument. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 28. An interesting passage of Scripture here. It's a little hard to just understand exactly what it is saying here in our King James Version, and I'm going to read it in the King James, but it's an interesting passage. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 23 to 29. And this is Isaiah the prophet is talking. This is about the judgment of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is thinking they've got it all together, and I mean, we are, we can do it. And here God comes through Isaiah and says, Give ye, give ye ear, in verse 23, and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of the, his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches, and scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat, and the appointed barley, and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion, and doth teach him. For the fitches are not, are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff, and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised, because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. I read this because I want, to get, I want to give you the idea of what tribulation is all about. Picture with me this morning. The field is ready. You sow the wheat. It comes up. And the harvest is there, ready to be harvested. Do we just go out and take that wheat and we cut it off and we take it into the oven and throw the whole stalk with the fruit and everything right into the oven? And within 30 minutes or whatever it is, we open the oven door and there's bread. It doesn't happen that way. That little seed has gone through a lot of tribulation to get to bread. You know, you have the fruit, you harvest it, now it has to go through the threshing, it has to go through the tribulation through the tribulum. And then as it comes out of that, it gets ground up. And then it goes into, with the other ingredients, into the bowl, the mixing bowl. And I'm going to be honest with you, I've watched my wife make bread and I would not want to be dough. 
okay? Because after it gets kneaded in that mixer, and she takes it out, and then she forms it after it has risen a few times, and she has punched it back down and left it rise again, and then she takes it out and forms it into loaves. And after that, she starts whacking that loaf of bread. It's not a pat. It is beating it to form it. Talk about tribulation. What does Jesus say? Well, here in in Isaiah, you know, these different kinds of seed that are grown and are now need to go through that threshing instrument, you use different types. Some is beaten with the staff, some with a rod, some with a threshing machine. But back to Revelation, Jesus says, I know thy works and I know thy tribulation. Notice that he did not say, I'm going to take you out of your tribulation. I'm going to take your tribulation away. No, he says, I know it. I know what you're going through. It's a beautiful thought. Because Jesus was allowing the church at Smyrna to go through tribulation. Why? Because as they were going through tribulation, they were becoming more like Jesus. And as they were becoming more like Jesus, they were that sweet aroma was continuing to come up into the very presence of the throne room of God. And Jesus, He saw their tribulation, and it was maybe painful, but He said, you know what, if I let them go through it again, They're going to become more like me. And that's what they want. Is that what you want this morning? To become more like Jesus. Friends, you're not going to become more like Jesus just sitting around and and being all cozy and comfortable. It's going to be tribulations that you're going to have to go through. What does Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, it says like this, and not not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And also in Hebrews chapter 12, we have the idea of chastening. We don't like it. But what does all of this do afterward? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness within us. That's what was happening with the church at Samaria. That, my friend, is what can happen to you here this morning. If you're going through tribulation, be thankful, rejoice, because it brings about patience, and then patience brings about experience. And what does experience bring about? It brings about hope within your life. Joseph Parker said this, and it's a little hard to understand that it may have been written quite a number of years ago. And I'm breaking in here about this idea of tribulation. It is even so. It must be hard to bear. It is hardest, methinks, poor sufferer, when thou art silent. I would have thee talk. It soothes poor misery listening to her tale. 
It is when thou art silent that I fear the tribulum is most severe upon thee. Oh, that thou couldst cry, whole hour, yea, shed tears all the day long, for then next day would be a day of joy. Bear it. Say, Lord, it is hard, but not too hard if thou wilt stand near me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Poor tribulated heart, God is now getting out of thee what is necessary for thine own sustenance. Let him alone. Do not interfere with him. Yield thyself and say, Thy will, my God, be done. Thy will, my God, be done. Allow the tribulations in your heart to work a beautiful work in your life. We also do know that later in Revelations it does talk, or later in Revelation it does talk about the tribulation, and I am not by any means here to tell you which side I am, where that's all going to be, the pre or the all of that. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the tribulation that we face here. The next word, moving on here, is poverty, and I believe this is talking. The Smyrnians were a poor people. The church at least was. Not the city. After all, they had schools of science and medicine. They were probably fairly wealthy. But they were poor materially and financially. And you know this morning, we can do the same. We don't really like that idea, us Anabaptists, you know. We... We like our comfort. We like our plush houses, our plush vehicles, comfortable. We want it all just really good. Church of Smyrna was poor. But I would like to take it a little bit further because I think the Church of Smyrna was this also. They were poor in spirit in order we must be poor in spirit in order to be rich in Christ. What does, what's the first beatitude? In Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And over the last year, I was preaching through, that whole, through the Sermon on the Mount and looking at what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But we must be spiritually poor, friends, this morning. Because if we aren't, we will never be part of the kingdom of heaven. And you know, the church at Smyrna was poor. If we go just a little bit further, and the last church, and we'll get to this here sometime here in the future, but the last church that Jesus talked to in Revelation chapter 3 was the church at Laodicea. And you know what the church at Laodicea said? It said they said, we are rich, we have need of nothing. And you know what Jesus said to them? He said, but you don't realize that you are poor and miserable and wretched. This morning, are we like the church at Smyrna? Where Jesus says, I know that you are poor in spirit. The more we grow in Christ, the more we will realize that we are poor. The closer, the more 
the more we grow in Christ, the more we realize how poverty-stricken we really are. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. And then in James 2, verse 5, it says, Hearken, my brethren, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him? And in Psalms 34, 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are very broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. So this morning, brothers and sisters, let's be poor in spirit. That's what the church of Smyrna was. <clears throat> now we get to this phrase, but thou art rich. That's where my title came from. This morning, if you have Christ in your heart, you are rich. You have it, friends. If Jesus Christ is in your life this morning, you are a blessed person. And you are rich. And you have all the wealth that you can ever have. It doesn't matter if, you have, if your checking account is zero this morning. If you have Jesus Christ, you have it all. Last night I was talking with my father and I was relating to him of a person who came to Christ and how that this person, it was so exciting as I watched this happen, this person come to Christ and the change that took place in that person's life. And as I'm talking, friends, if that doesn't excite you this morning, then you better check your life. Because if a person, if you don't get excited when you hear the testimony of a lost soul coming to Jesus Christ, and there's something wrong in your life. I'm telling you, when I was sharing that with my father last night, there was just something inside of me, and I can't even get it out this morning. It's, it's in here. The words aren't there to relate to you. The excitement of a soul that has come to Christ. How rich are you? Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And I realized we were here the last time in the last message and I didn't read it for the sake of time. But this is the riches we have in Christ and what He has done. We're going to start in verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and, with God, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, 
and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That is rich. That is riches. That is what you have. And this morning, if you don't have it, you can have it. But you are rich. That's what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna. This morning, if you are not rich in Jesus Christ, I challenge you, don't put it off another day. We have so much. We don't need, we have need of nothing if we have Jesus Christ. Now take that the right way. We're not saying that like the church at Laodicea says it. But with Jesus Christ, He fulfills everything. And we don't need anything else. But so many times, we are filling it up with other things. And then Jesus cannot come to us and say, you are rich. Let's move on here. The latter part of verse 9 of our text. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This, this word blasphemy is to slander a deity or something sacred. That's what blasphemy means. These were actually Jews. Okay? I don't think there was a literal synagogue of Satan. Unlike today, you know, there is... I don't know if we can even call them churches, but I think they might say that. That are Satan. Where people meet to worship Satan. That's not what this is talking about. These were Jews who looked like Jews. They acted like Jews. They went to the synagogue every Sabbath. And you could tell they were a Jew from a mile away. Jesus says, they were what? Synagogue of Satan. This morning I challenge you, where are you at? We're going to look a little bit at this um, at persecution. You know, the same is true today. These were Jews that were actually worshiping Satan. The same is true today and has been down through church history. The Christians persecute Christians. It's true. 
It happens. The Jews here, and there's others. I realize the Muslims do it also. But the challenge I want to bring to you is are you looking every part like a Christian this morning, but you are persecuting others? I'm not saying you are, but let's be careful. Persecution, you know, we look at that word and we say, okay, that's, you know, that's, you know, this person over here or this country over here where they're beating people physically. They're doing that. They're killing people. Do you realize that just, uh, it was either Christmas Day or right over Christmas, there was a hundred, um, they think maybe even it could be up to 200, 200 Christians in Nigeria were killed. That's, that's just less than a week ago. Okay, and we look at that and we say that's persecution. Persecution has the, the definition is harass is one of the words, is to chase, is to pursue, is to throw insults into someone's face. It's getting a little closer home, isn't it? You know? How are we doing this morning? Are we throwing insults into others' faces and persecuting them like that? Are we harassing other people and persecuting people that way? Back to Polycarp, out of the martyr's mirror. Polycarp was 80... 86 years old when they went to get him. They went and brought Polycarp in. There was a theater in Smyrna. That may have been where they actually brought him into the amphitheater. But as they went to get him, he actually, the Christians, the others, tried to tell him, hey, you have to leave. And he did move around a little bit from one house to another house, but they finally caught up with him. And actually, when they came to get him, they were thinking he was a lot younger than what he was. They saw Polycarp and they were like, wait a minute, this, this is the one? And they tried to, at the house, they tried to get him to recant because they didn't want to hurt this old grandpa. They couldn't, why? Why would we kill him or why would we torture him? And I'm just going to read a little bit from the Martyr's Mirror on Polycarp. As soon as Polycarp had entered the circus or amphitheater where he was to be executed, a voice came to him from heaven saying, Be strong, O Polycarp, and valiant in thy confession and in the suffering which awaits thee. No person saw the one from whom this voice proceeded, but many of the Christians that stood around heard it. However, on account of the great commotion, the greater part of the people could not hear it. It nevertheless tended to strengthen Polycarp and those who heard it. And then as they went on and they interrogated him some more, and the, and the um, proconsul said, Polycarp, come on, 
you really can't you, you're so old, why would you continue on? And this was Polycarp's response. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? That was Polycarp's testimony. As he stood there knowing full well what was probably going to come, the martyr, William Tyndall, who gave us the English Bible, said this regarding his persecution, I never expected anything else. That was William Tyndall. I say that, I read that, because friends, this morning, if you're saying persecution, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like persecution. You know what 2 Timothy 3.12 says? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I didn't say that. That's what the Word of God said. This morning, if you're not facing persecution and you have never faced persecution, then I think it would be healthy for you to check your walk with Jesus Christ this morning. Or your walk, your Christian walk. It might be a good idea to check in. I'm not here saying that we should be constantly facing persecution. Not everybody will all the time. But according to the Bible, it says, and notice this, it says, we'll live godly in Christ Jesus. There's a prerequisite to the persecution. Okay? I think we're only going to face it if we live godly. But can you imagine William Tyndall, he said, I didn't expect anything else. Why? He wasn't even surprised that he was going to be persecuted. He expected it. You know, Polycarp, when they finally did, they, he wouldn't even burn. Actually, they, were, they burned him. And when they were burning him, the, it didn't even work. They pierced him, and the blood actually, his blood actually kind of started putting the fire out. It was a whole, it, things weren't really working out so well for the persecutors. But these were men that didn't give up. In fact, on the day that Polycarp was persecuted, there was 12 others that were persecuted along with him. Well, I don't know about along with him, but later that day. Friends, this was in Smyrna. This was what the Christians at Smyrna were facing. It says in verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. You know, Matthew 5, 10-12 says this, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. According to those verses, we should be happy to face persecution. The disciples were what did they do there in Acts 4 or 5 when they came back from the temple and they told they, they were relating the story to the others and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for who? For Christ's sake. Oh, but I don't want persecution. I don't either, friends. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't. Okay? 
I got this from a R. Kent Hughes. He said this, by far the greatest reason there is so little persecution is that the church has become like the world. If you want to get along, the formula is simple. Approve of the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at its humor. Immerse yourself in its entertainment. Smile benignly when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Draw no moral judgments. Take no stand on the moral, political issues, moral and political issues. Above all, do not share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth sailing. How are we at Millmont this morning when we think of that? What did Lot do? Lot got sick and tired, kind of, of all the fighting that was going on back there on the, in the hills with Abraham. Where did he pitch his tent? Toward Sodom. Okay? And a few years later, where was he? In Sodom. And then what happened when God came to bring judgment upon Sodom? The angel said, go get your family and bring them together. And you know what his family said? Why? Why? Why would I come into your house? You're going to try to say this is what's going to happen? No. Why? Because Lot had lowered the standard. He had compromised. And he had allowed things into his life. And he, when he went down from the mountain and he looked at that well-watered plain of down through there, and he may have seen Sodom in the distance, and he said, I won't go that far, no, uh -uh. but I'll just go down in the plain here, and I'll set up my tent down here, and it'll be good down here. But he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Friends, this morning, I think sometimes the church is pitching their tent toward Sodom. And we're just getting a little closer to Sodom. And you realize that Jesus said in Matthew, uh, in John 15, He said, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated Me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Friends, this morning, the world should be hating you. According to what Jesus said, no, I'm not asking us to go out there and try to get the world to hate us. I'm not asking us to go out there and try to get persecution. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But you know, it's challenging to me as I look at this verse where it says, if the world hates you, what about those Christians who are hating you for what you stand for? Where are they at? You know, I'm not the judge, and I'm thankful I'm not. But let's be careful that we aren't hating others who are taking a stand for what is right, for what they think may be right. And it might be right. Let's be careful before we just cast judgment and we start hating them for what they're doing. You know, the question I think we need to ask ourselves is what stand are we taking? This morning, what stand are we taking? You know, we have a lot of things going on in our world today and in our country today. And you know what? The more it goes on after a while, it starts numbing us. You realize? 
divorce and remarriage, divorce, it starts numbing us. And after a while, it's, you know, we just kind of, well, there it is again. And it just numbs us. What about some other things that are going on in our country or in this country, in the world? The things start numbing us. We don't, we don't speak out against them because you know what? We don't really want to get ridiculed. We don't really want to face persecution. Friends, it's time that the church of Jesus Christ starts taking a stand and is willing to take a stand and not compromise and not be ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did He say? If you're ashamed of me, I am going to be ashamed of you someday. We cannot be ashamed of these things. The church at Smyrna was taking a stand. They didn't care what was going to happen to them. They didn't care if it was their head. They knew where they stood and they weren't going to compromise on that. So this morning, I challenge us, let's take a stand. Let's wake up. And let's not run from persecution. I'm not asking us to go find it necessarily, but I'm saying don't be surprised if when you take a stand and you live godly that you won't face some persecution. Let's come to the conclusion here. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not hurt of the second death. Friends, remain faithful. Keep on going. The second death will not touch you if you remain faithful. D.L. Moody said this, he who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. Shall we stand for a closing prayer?